the great fundamental issue now before our people can be stated briefly. It is, are the American people fit to govern themselves, to rule themselves, to control themselves? I believe they are. My opponents do not. I believe in the right of the people to rule. I believe again that the American people are, as a whole, capable of self-control and of learning by their mistakes. Welcome to the Serve to Lead podcast. I'm your host, James Strzok. As we get started, may I ask a favor? Please help us reach a growing audience by taking just a moment and giving us a high rating on your preferred podcast provider. This podcast is supported by listeners. Please consider joining at Substack, where you'll also have access to frequent posts on current and historical events. It's an absolute delight to have Jonathan Darman in the house. Jonathan Darman is a journalist and historian who writes about American politics and the presidency. He's the author of the highly acclaimed new book, Becoming FDR, The Personal Crisis That Made a President. As a former national political correspondent for Newsweek, Jonathan Darman covered the presidential campaigns of Hillary Clinton, John Kerry, and Mitt Romney, and wrote extensively about other major figures in national politics and media. He's also a familiar presence on politics and presidential history on broadcast television, cable news, and public radio. Jonathan Darman, congratulations on your wonderful new book, and thank you for joining us today. Oh, it's great to be here. Thanks. My understanding is that you set about researching Franklin Roosevelt in the final year of the Obama administration. What prompted you to focus on FDR and why should Americans, particularly young ones who might even confuse Theodore and Franklin Roosevelt, why should they look to FDR today? It's a great question. Um, yeah, I, I did set out, um, many years ago now, it feels, uh, to write a book about Franklin Roosevelt, uh, because I wanted to sort of answer a question that felt pretty urgent then in 2015 and feels honestly even more urgent today, which is in troubled times, in moments of national trauma and national crisis, how does a president inspire hope? Um, and I always viewed Franklin Roosevelt, um, who led the country, of course, through the Great Depression and through World War II, as just about the best example we have, certainly from the 20th century, of an American president who was able to do that, who was able to form a bond with the American people and help them find hope when the world was truly scary. Um, and I thought, honestly, when I started out that I was going to write about FDR's presidency. I didn't plan to focus on his experience with polio at all. Um, I thought everyone sort of knew the story about FDR and polio. I thought that, you know, he, people, the sort of significance of it was the efforts that he took as president to conceal his condition from the American public. Uh, but when I really sort of dug into it and tried to get at that question of how FDR inspired hope, I discovered that his the story of his experience with polio, getting polio at the age of 39 uh, a decade before he came to the presidency, was really essential to transforming his character and developing all the qualities in him that made him a president who could who could foster hope in the country. And 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 I did I found it in a lot of ways. I found it in the testimony of people who knew him best. Um, his his wife Eleanor talked about his experience with polio as forcing him to reckon with the fundamentals of living. His chief political advisor, Louis Howe, talked about polio as the moment when 
uh, FTR for the first time began to see things from the other fellow's point of view, sort of developing his incredible powers of empathy. And the book really came home to me when I read letters that other polio survivors wrote to him beginning in the earliest days of his recovery from the illness. Um, people who had polio, Franklin Roosevelt was a famous person when he got polio at age 39. He'd been the Democratic vice presidential candidate in the 1920 election the year before. And so when the, when the news got out that he had polio, other polio survivors wrote him letters. Some of them were seeking advice from him, but others were offering advice from their own experience. And I was particularly struck by a letter from one man uh, where he described um, how he had been, he was someone who was fully paralyzed and he'd spent seven years in a hospital. Um, and he talked about the ways that rage and shame and fear had impeded his own recovery. And when he was writing to FDR, he said, Mr. Roosevelt, whatever you do, don't worry, it won't help any. And when I read those first time, those words for the first time, it sort of opened my book up for me because I could see a direct line from that sentiment to the man who can say the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. That's so well said, Jonathan Darman. And I would say to listeners who've not yet had the pleasure of reading this book, it's beautifully rendered in terms of photography, graphics, as well as the writing. And one of the issues, if I could tug on a little bit with you, relating to polio and that whole era compared to ours is the sense of precarity. I mean, here's a person, FDR, with every single bit of good fortune one might imagine, at least from the outside. And there he is having run for the vice presidency, which would be the first of five national runs. He's not even 40 years old, but out of the blue, it can all go. And that seems to be a common theme of that era and one that later comes up during the depression and the war. Do you think that's a factor also to be mindful of with him and his development? Oh, 100%. I think that it's it's so important to understand, you know, for me, a big task of writing this book was trying to get inside of FDR's head and, and think, what must that have felt like? Um, because, you know, what, what, what people might not know is he had a whole career in politics before he got polio and his identity as a political figure in that pre-polio era was as someone who was sort of the picture of activity, athleticism, elegant physical bearing. He really tried quite consciously to be to present himself as the reincarnation of his famous cousin, Teddy Roosevelt who was the greatest sort of political name of the era. And FDR's goal all his, all his adult life had been to just sort of do that, to do the best Teddy Roosevelt impersonation he could. He got put on the 1920 uh, Democratic ticket in part because he did such a great job running around the convention, leaping over rows of chairs and people loved the way he looked. So when you think about what it would be like for him to get polio, this, 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 illness, which in 1921 was about as terrifying a diagnosis as you could get. It was um, an illness that ever was universally feared, but very poorly understood. Like people didn't understand how it was transmitted and they really didn't understand what you could do to treat its effects. Um, so FDR gets that illness and he realizes that it's, it's not only just transformed his body, robbed him of the ability to walk, 
It's also robbed him of his whole identity in politics. And it, what's so remarkable to me is a lot of people would have taken from that, okay, I'm gonna just do something else with my life. And a lot of people around FDR were urging him to do something else to sort of give up on this idea of politics. He instead decides he wants to stay in politics, but he understands that in order to do that, he needs to go away from, from everything that he's, that he's accomplished up to that point and focus on sort of rehabilitation and trying, to, and trying to recover from the effects of polio. And in the process, what he really does is develop a whole new set of qualities of character that are gonna make him a much better leader over time. It's also so striking to me in reading your book on the hammer blow of that timing. Here he was <clears throat> very shortly after his marriage had become very strained, and he had an arrangement with his mother and wife to continue it after an affair that was very serious. So he's received a number of very tough hits all at once, and those intimate relationships, as you point out, will turn out to be key to his overcoming all this. That, that's right. Um, you know, looking at his relationship with Eleanor Roosevelt and thinking about <clears throat> Eleanor Roosevelt's transformation that she goes through in these years was some of the most interesting work that I did on this book. Because she starts, um, in, in my book starts a couple years before he got polio. And when you look at Eleanor Roosevelt in those years, she's someone who's almost unrecognizable to those of us who know her as a figure in history. Um, so in those years, she was, as you say, she was sort of dealing with the devastation of her marriage after her husband's affair with Lucy Mercer, who had been Eleanor's social secretary. So it was this sort of giant betrayal and humiliation that left Eleanor feeling emotionally adrift and really not sure of her place in the world. She had no sense of what her purpose was, and she was sort of terrified of the public realm and this idea that she should be a public figure. Um, I always, you know, one of the most surprising moments for me looking at this was in that 1920 campaign when, when the pre-polio FDR is, is running for president, uh, a reporter comes to Eleanor and asks her what she thinks of, of the issue of women's suffrage. Um, and women's suffrage in 1920 is a really big issue of the day because it's the first ele election in which women have the right to vote nationwide under the 19th Amendment. And Eleanor Roosevelt's response is, I don't have a strong opinion either way. Personally, I'm content with my husband and my children. You know, Eleanor Roosevelt, that's not what we think of her, of the kind of thing she would say at all. And in just a few years time, she's gonna completely transform and become someone who not only thinks that women should be in the political realm, she's gonna be in, in the political realm herself as one of the most influential women in the Democratic Party with a power base that's all her own, and with an identity that's all her own and totally separate in a lot of ways from her husband. And it's actually Franklin's polio that makes that happen. When he is focusing on his recovery and stepping away from active public life, there's this need for someone to re represent the Roosevelts on the public stage. And Eleanor Re Roosevelt sort of at first reluctantly steps into that void but she very quickly discovers that the sort of big world of ideas and of action is the place that she was always meant to be. So you get to see her transforming her character at the same time as he's transforming his. And you also get to see them 
really sort of renegotiating their marriage based on the new people that they've both become. It's very interesting because as you explained in the book so well, Eleanor was the beloved niece of Theodore Roosevelt. Franklin was a more distant cousin. Uh, they got married in the White House when Theodore Roosevelt was president. Franklin's early career following a discussion with Grenville Clark at his law firm, Carter, Ledger, and Milburn, uh, he basically said, I'm going to repeat TR. You know, he went to Harvard and Columbia for college and law school. He goes to the New York legislature. He becomes assistant secretary of the Navy, governor, president. But what was really interesting to me about your book that I had never seen this angle was that a lot of that following TR was kind of a cosplay, we'd say today. It, it had a lack of authenticity. He's a very different character in many ways. But then where I realize now, one could argue, he really became TR's spiritual heir, was an overcoming physical uh, debilitation. Now, TR didn't have polio, thank God, but he had very serious asthma. He recreated his body and his mind and spirit as a project. And I can't help but think that's a lot of what FDR did at a much deeper level. What do you think? I, I think that's a great point. It's a it's a really interesting similarity between the two of them. And it's and it shows you how, you know, the sort of irony of history in a certain way. Because FDR does, the young FDR spends so much time trying to be like Teddy Roosevelt in all of these sort of superficial ways. He wants all of the jobs that uh, Teddy Roosevelt has. Um, he becomes, he gets himself appointed uh, assistant secretary of the Navy, which had been the job that Teddy Roosevelt had when he became a national figure uh, in, the, in the lead up to the Spanish-American War. And when Franklin goes to Washington in that job, he's sort of doing this nonstop Teddy Roosevelt impersonation where he starts using the word bully a lot. Um, and he sort of, you know, plays it plays until he, he realizes that journalists are kind of lazy and they and they'll they'll write good things about you if if you give them an easy prepackaged storyline. And so he gives them all these moments where he's acting like Teddy Roosevelt. And it gives and that gets him exactly what he wants, which is the story of another Roosevelt in the Navy Department. But the way that he really becomes like Teddy Roosevelt, as you say, is by being faced with adversity and making a choice that it's not gonna be the unmaking of him, it's gonna be the making of him. I don't think that he ever consciously did that, but that's in, in, on a sort of deeper spiritual level what they have in common, much more than any of these attempts that he made to act like Teddy Roosevelt in a way that the public would, would consume. And this whole project of self-creation amid precarity, and they're both seeking to personify the country in some way, to make their own life story part of the American story, to personify part of America. And I want to turn you to this for a moment, please, Jonathan Darman, because again, what is so striking to me among so many things in this wonderful book, Becoming FDR, is today, so many Americans of all political persuasions, partisan, whatever they are, seem to think everything's invulnerable. Everything's permanent. Institutions just sit there and they're made out of marble. But in their time, in FDR's moment, the Civil War was as recent as the 1960s are today. And he even was president, president during some Gettysburg 
memorial services and alumni gatherings, uh, many wondered, even TR privately, if the US was gonna survive. And then mm -hmm. of course, FDR comes out. He has seen the Great Depression, the Second World War, and the United States really was in an existential threat. What is your thought about that? I, I think it's a great point. And honestly, it's it's sort of why I wrote this book. And, and uh, because I think that it's a new phenomenon in my lifetime. Um, I'm, I'm 41 years old. Um, and so when I was sort of coming of age in the period after the Cold War, I sort of took for granted that um, everything in American life was going to be sort of fixed and, and pretty low stakes. Um, and it's only after 9-11 and the Iraq war, um, and then some of the you know, horrible divisions that we've seen in recent years that I've had that sort of sense of certainty about the American project. Um, you know, feel challenged. Um, and so I wanted to look at another moment when, when it did feel there was that uncertainty and there was that great sort of sense of challenge. And, and I think the depression is, is as close a moment as we have. And honestly, when I was writing this book, sort of the way that FDR looked at things in that period of time provided me with some consolation. Um, so I was, I was writing this book and dur during the pandemic, um, I was finishing it during the 2020 election and, and it's, its contested aftermath. And there were certain days where I would look to FDR's words um, from the depression in World War II, sort of seeking consolation. And I was particularly struck by a line he gave in his 1932 speech, accepting the democratic nomination for the presidency. So some of the darkest moments of the depression and he said, out of every crisis, mankind rises with some share of greater knowledge of higher decency and of purer purpose. And I would look at those words after a day like January 6th and say to myself, man, I hope that's true. Because it can be very hard for us today to see, we see the crisis, but it's hard for us to see the greater knowledge or the purer purpose. But FDR was able to say that in the summer of 1932, a moment that's in a lot of ways even more perilous for the Republic than anything we're facing now. And people believed him and they believed him because he believed it. And he believed it because he had lived it in his own life. And that's really changed the way that I think about what we should expect of politicians when they talk about hope today. That was beautifully said. Uh, Jonathan Darman, it's also interesting looking back and the polio factor makes this even more stark with FDR that he was among a series of world leaders in the early to mid 20th century who had a profound belief in their individual destiny. Uh, there's FDR, there's Winston Churchill, there's Charles de Gaulle. It must be said there was also Hitler and Stalin, and Mao Zedong. What was in the water in the late 1800s? or what was in the world in the early 20th century that resulted in this or prompted this? It's a, it's a really good question. I think, um, you know, destiny was a word. This is something I learned a lot. Uh, destiny was a word that was used a lot in the 1930s. Um, and, you know, when FDR uh, 
gave his speech at the 1936 Democratic National Convention, where he says this generation has a rendezvous with destiny. Um, there was a, there was an oration that had been given earlier that night called Franklin Roosevelt, Man of Destiny. So it was a sort of concept of, of the era, and they didn't yet have the sort of challenge to the great man theory of history that, that you know, sort of says, oh, really, can an individual affect the, the course of history that much? But I think what's sort of wonderful is, you know, destiny was, was a complicated concept in Franklin Roosevelt's life because he thought his destiny was one thing. You know, it gets back to what we were talking about earlier. He thought that if he just followed this clear path for himself, his destiny would, would unfold in a, in a pretty planned way. But actually, it's only when what he thinks is his destiny gets completely wrenched away from him that he becomes the person that he was really destined to be all along. And I think one of the things that FDR takes from that is a deep respect for the unpredictability of human events. And I think that's a quality that, that all of our great presidents really share, is an understanding that you can't predict the future and you can't control events. You just have to pay attention to and try and understand how things are changing and try and see what, what role you can play in shaping the course of, of, of history. One of the curiosities one notices is that among these people of destiny, such as we just listed, FDR, Churchill, De Gaulle, Hitler, Stalin, Mao Zedong, they had a curious quirk where they all tended to recognize others like them. So let's talk for a moment about FDR and Hitler. We all recognize that Churchill saw the Hitler problem early and all credits due to him. It strikes me that FDR's fate was braided with Hitler's to an extent that a lot of people just don't think about it. So for example, the serendipity that as he was preparing to assume the presidency in March, 1933, FDR celebrated his 51st birthday on Monday, January 30th, the same day that Hitler becomes chancellor of Germany. Right. And as you point out in the book, FDR understood before almost anybody else the tragic situation unfolding where he would eventually, with rather extraordinary skill, navigate us into war against Hitler before the people that attacked us from Japan. How do you think about FDR and Hitler? I think that they're shaped by a lot of the same events before either of them become the dominant figures in their country. Um, so, you know, my book starts in the immediate aftermath of World War One, um, and, and, you know, that sort of sense that men of their generation had, that the old generation of leaders was past, and there was going to be a new way of doing things, and that the war had completely changed things. You know, in FDR's life, you see him and Eleanor, um, I describe this in the book, sort of pacing through um, the, the, the killing fields of, of post-war Europe, seeing this just destruction that has been passed. And, and that's gotta, you know, sort of weigh incredibly heavily in their thinking in the years that follow on this question of what is America's role in the world? What is America's role in terms of its, uh, you know, entanglement or lack thereof in European affairs? Um, and so that's always sort of present um, for him. And, you know, Hitler obviously, is, is shaped by World War One as well. This sort of um, you know insane sense that he has that there's been this this stab in the back in Germany that 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 the war was not won the the war for Germany was not lost 
on the battlefield, but it was lost by a, by an act of betrayal. Um, and so they're sort of, you know, they're they're both shaped in in that post World World War One landscape, and they're trying to to rise in that post World War landscape one landscape. And they come into conflict ultimately, and their countries come into conflict ultimately because of the unfinished business from that era. So I think it's always it was always you know in, instructive to me in working on this, even though I focused very closely on FDR's personal story in a particularly sort of private moment of his life to pan the camera across the ocean at different times and look at what's happening in the rise of Hitler at this point. Where is Winston Churchill? Where is Stalin? Where are all these other men who are, who are, whose destiny is ultimately going to be interlinked with his? All this comes back, as you write so beautifully, to FDR's personal character. And I'd like to read a quote that you include from Robert Sherwood, who was a very keen analyst who worked closely with Roosevelt on speeches. The quote is, I try continually to study him, to try to look beyond his charming and amusing and warmly affectionate surface into his heavily forested interior. But I could never really understand what was going on in there. Please explain that to us. <laughs> you know, uh, that, that quotation, um, the heavily forested interior, is just a wonderful way of describing Franklin Roosevelt. And I think that um, I certainly felt, and I think most people who, who write about Franklin Roosevelt have moments of feeling like they've gotten completely lost in that he heavily forested interior. The forest is just too thick. Um, FDR was incredibly good at keeping his true feelings hidden from the world. Um, and, it, and that's a habit that he learned early, early on in life. Um, he was raised in sort of splendid isolation at his familial um, estate in Hyde Park, New York, under the sort of omnipresent eye of his mother, Sarah Delano Roosevelt. And Sarah had this sort of overarching expectation of her son, which was that he should be pleasant all the time. And that sort of helps create in him uh, this, this sort of unique emotional intuition that he has, because if you're charged with being pleasant all the time, you develop a very fine ability to sort of sense anything you're doing, the slightest sign that anything you're doing is causing displeasure in others. But it also gives makes him a master at keeping his true feelings hidden from the world. Um, and I think you know that's that's something that uh, that people who dealt with him in, in the White House were were continually vexed by, frustrated by. Um, and it's another reason why I was really drawn to the polio story because polio, particularly in the first weeks, months, years after he gets sick and is and is facing this long period of recovery, it's one of the few moments where the curtain is kind of pulled back and you get a sense of what must have been going on in his head. What was he really thinking and feeling? Um, and he expressed it in, you know, in sort of rare moments, particularly to other polio patients, and you see him in, 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 in a sense vulnerable in a way that he had never been before and would never really show the world again. Let's talk a little bit about how you got yourself into that heavily forested interior so well, uh, your own path. I mean, you live in New York City area and in the Hudson Valley, as I understand it. You attended Harvard, as he did. You and your family have deep experience in American politics, the presidency, journalism, history. How did these things play into your capacity to think, 
yeah, you know what? I think I sort of get this. That's a that's a really good question. Um, uh, you're right. My uh, my father was uh, in government uh, for the first 12 years of my life. He was he was uh, he served under four different Republican presidents, but he was uh, he served in senior levels under the President Reagan and the first President Bush. Um, and I was born uh, two weeks into Ronald Reagan's first term. So sort of politics and the presidency were very much the background in a certain sense from for, for me from from the get go. Um, but I didn't, you know, when I when I took on a project like this, I didn't really see very much of myself in any of it. Um, I guess it's sort of interesting in a certain way that um, I did I did I set out to write a book, as I said, about FDR's presidency, um, and I ended up doing a book about FDR when he was that starts when he was in his late thirties. Uh, which was, you know, the moment that I was when I was when I was writing the book, and I think it's really because that was the easiest way to sort of understand him and to empathize with him. So I I know what it's like at this point in my life to have a fairly, you know, strong sense of what I'm doing and how the world works and my place in it, and to just imagine what it would be like to have that completely wrenched away from me, um, and how hard it would be to sort of find a new way of being in the world. That was when his struggle really became, um, you know, believable to me, um, and and compelling and and surprising. Um, but it was just trying to imagine it in my own life, and then thinking about him, who was, you know, it was it was an entirely different thing to be in your late thirties in 1921. He had he had um, had he, he and Eleanor had had six children at that point, five of whom um, were were were. Uh, lived past infancy. Um, so he was even further along uh, in life than, than someone in their late 30s would be today. And that was really an easy way for me to, to get inside his head and see, see everything that he was facing. Well, Jonathan Darman, you're an accomplished and award-winning journalist as well as a historian. And that makes you perfectly set up, as you've done here, to write really vivid narrative history. You set scenes, you back up things with exactitude at the same time. This is unusual and it's rare even. How have you mastered this? What have been your influences? Well, thank you. That's that's very kind of you to say. Um, I, you know, first of all, I, I try to just find, um, look, I think that it's really important that we keep returning to figures in history that can feel familiar, like Franklin Roosevelt. As you said earlier in our conversation, there have been a lot of books written about FDR's presidency, um, but it's important to keep returning to them and to be in dialogue with, 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 with these figures from the past because they have a lot to teach us now, as particularly as, as our world in a lot of ways resembles theirs in ways that we never thought possible. So just sort of, you know, my, my background as a journalist of looking for what's the fresh angle here, what's the story that other people aren't paying attention to is really, is really um, what, what, what I find most important um, in my work. And, and you know, we have, we have so many great narrative historians who are working today. Um, and uh, and I, would, I would say anyone who wants to, to, to write in this space um, or, or, or write, in, write at all, the most important thing to do is just read as much as possible 
Um, because if you, if, and I've, I've been reading, you know, books about presidential history, like basically as long as I've been able to read. Um, and if you do that, you know, you get a sense of, of, of how you tell a story and how you use facts to explain the world and, and, and show things in a way that they haven't been displayed before. Jonathan Dorman, one of the things that really struck me in the book is you have narrative historical skills that, and this is not to flatter you, it's just a fact, that are, are very strong and reminded me of an earlier era of narrative history. At the same time, your book is very, very current for readers. I noticed, and I'd be interested in how you would uh, react to this. I noticed your chapters are very brief, so they're easy to deal with. You have a lot of beautiful pictures and a layout as well as a, a pretty thick illustration section. So when you wrote this, who was your audience in mind and how were you thinking about the moment we live when people are not going to sit down like it's 1965 yeah. with a cigar and a glass of wine and read one chapter all night? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, I think I think the simplest answer is I would just sort of want to be told a story. I, I tell the story in the way that I would want to have it told to me. And probably my attention span um, has shrunk along with everyone else's. Um, and so that that and that was part of what led me to sort of make shorter chapters to just keep moving the story along. Um, I'm also influenced, you know, um, like a lot of people, I've become a great audiobook listener um, in the last ten years. Um, and I was never someone who who listened to to books on tape growing up, but I love audiobooks because it's a great way to sort of um, you know be 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 engaging with a book while you're doing other things in your life. Um, and it's it's become a huge part of my life now. Um, so I was thinking about that when I was writing this as well, is how is this a story that people could listen to um, at this or read it or or be switching back and forth, which is something um, that I that I do a lot. You know, I'll buy a book in multiple different formats, depending on where I am in my day. I'll, I'll sort of check in with it. And, and that was something that I was thinking about when I was writing this as well, is this, am I constantly sort of moving the story along, but also reorienting the reader because I don't expect someone to just sit down with a, with a big tome on a, on, a, on a Sunday inside of a, you know, dark wood panel library um, and, and emerge, you know, an expert on Franklin Roosevelt. <laughs> now, this is your second book, your first one, which was very well received, and I can assure people from direct experience also, is a wonderful read, very provocative. It's called Landslide, and it has a big tie and effect to FDR. But I'd be curious if you could talk a little bit about how you think about LBJ and Ronald Reagan, who are the main topics of that book, and how they relate to FDR, and how your thinking may have changed over the subsequent almost decade since you wrote it. Yeah. Um... I think I was drawn in FTR in part because I had been working on on my on my first book, um, which was about Lyndon Johnson and Ronald Reagan in the 1960s. And FDR is actually a common link between those two very different presidents. Um, Johnson and Reagan were the same generation, um, and FDR was a hero for for both of them. Um, and they saw in him the sort of Things that they wanted to see in themselves. So LBJ, you know, uh, when 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 FDR died, he, he LBJ said he was just like a daddy to me, 
Um, you know, he was he was he was LBJ's political hero, and he was the sort of ultimate model of a president who was able to get big things done and create a lot of programs um, and 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 do as much as you possibly could do with the presidency. Um, and 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 LBJ very consciously tried to have the Great Society be a, a, a sort of presidential program that could compete in history's eyes with the New Deal. Uh, FDR was actually a, a hero of Reagan's as well, which might be more surprising to people because you know so much of what we think of as of the conservative movement is is seen as sort of a rejection of of New Deal era government overreach. Um, but you know, first of all, I think in a lot of ways, what FD, what Reagan saw himself as doing was was curtailing the excesses of the Great Society, Johnson's program, much more than he was the excesses of the New Deal. But also, I mean, FDR was Reagan's hero as a president who was this sort of grand performer. Um, when when Ronald Reagan was a young man, he would listen to FDR's speeches on the radio, and he would sort of do this impersonation of him, and with a with a imaginary cigarette holder, and it, and he and that sort of sparks the idea in Ronald Reagan's eyes of the possibilities that are there for you as a performer if you if you go into the realm of politics. Um, FDR is the example of all that you can achieve and all the attention you can get and all the glory you can receive in the public realm if, if you're someone who can really form a connection with the American people. And so I see FDR in a lot of ways. Johnson and Reagan are two very different approaches to the presidency. They, they both have different strengths. FDR in a lot of ways is someone who, who combines a president, who combines um, the best aspects of both of those men and maybe some of the worst as well. <laughs> Now, there's a clear connection between your first two books, Landslide on Johnson and Reagan, and what might be called a little bit their sibling rivalry over the FDR project a generation later. And then now you've gone back to really explain the FDR phenomenon through his extraordinary destiny and his overcoming polio. What's your next project? That's a great question. Um, I'm I'm not yet at a point where I'm where I'm able to say. Uh, it takes me a while um, to find uh, to find a book because you know when you're when you're writing a book, it's it, it becomes sort of your whole life. And if you're writing about a book about a, a figure from history, you have to really be be comfortable spending a lot of time trying to get inside that person's head, which is what I what what the part of this work that I really love is is taking these figures who can be pretty gifted. At concealing themselves from the world and trying to peel back and see what's really going on, so it takes me a while to sort of uh, find someone to look at and and find what the unique way in can be. I guess um, given the pattern that I just described, if if I came to FDR because he was a hero to uh, to Johnson and Reagan, um, I should probably do do Teddy Roosevelt next because he was the hero. Uh, for Franklin Roosevelt. I don't I don't think I'm going to do Teddy Roosevelt, but may, maybe I should re-examine that. Oh, well, this reader helps you do Teddy Roosevelt. That would be a wonderful book. Uh, let me ask you a couple of personal items before we go. Please. Are there, are there significant matters relating to history, politics, journalism, you know, life or work about which you've changed your mind over time? 
history politics uh no there's not a single issue in history <laughs> politics journalism life or work on which i've changed my mind <laughs> yeah i think i change um all the time uh let's see i, I did try to use the modifier significant <laughs> okay good noted um i think that my work in history uh uh writing about history has increased um my appreciation for humility in politicians and the presidency because i think when you look at sort of you know when you, when you're writing about history you spend a lot of time uh reading old newspaper clips and reading people's diaries and letters where they're talking about the events of the day and the way that they understand what's happening in their own time is so different from what we can see you know, 50, 60 years on um, when we have the, the full picture. Um, so this idea that we should expect politicians today to be able to accurately and certainly describe the world, um, I'm, I'm a lot more skeptical um, of, of anyone who does that today, because I think that's someone who hasn't really had to, to reckon with the fact that human beings are, are unpredictable and human affairs are unpredictable. So what would you do to educate people as citizens and as public officials? Would you move them more toward history, which seems a bit disfavored at the present time? I certainly would. I think that, um, you know, I don't know if I would go as far as, as, the, um, as the Harry Truman line, which is I'm probably going to mangle it, but there, there's nothing new under the sun except the history you haven't read yet. Um, you know, I think that we can sort of, you know, we live in a pretty narcissistic age and we get and and we're and we as a country like to think of ourselves as sort of always geared toward the future and not looking back over our shoulder. But the past keeps coming back to bite us and unresolved, you know, sort of great questions from our past um stay unresolved and they and they keep and we keep having to to live them out all over again so i think it's really looking at history engaging with history reckoning with history is is really an essential thing to make us move forward even if you're someone who wants to be looking toward the future and, and not feeling constrained by what's come before when Winston Churchill became prime minister under very difficult circumstances in may of 1940 when it looked like all was lost and he and Roosevelt were really facing a major struggle for civilization as they saw it. Churchill said that, quote, the use of recriminating about the past is to enforce effective action at the present. Mm -hmm. And it seems that's a profound thing. And if you look at these people, we're talking about Franklin Roosevelt, Theodore Roosevelt, Abraham Lincoln, George Washington, a lot of the founders, they were deeply knowledgeable of history, Woodrow Wilson. And that perhaps is something that ought to be reconsidered. It's very interesting that Theodore Roosevelt and Woodrow Wilson, great rivals they were, were both presidents of the American Historical Association. Mm -hmm. Can you imagine in our era, any politician, and this is not a partisan matter of any kind, but I can't imagine any politician, even if the Historical Association weren't purely academic, who could play such a role? Yeah, 
And I think it probably, I can't imagine, I mean, I can't imagine being president under any circumstance, but to be a president who doesn't have the comfort that gets provided by looking to what other presidents have faced, I mean, that would just feel incredibly lonely because you you see it, um, you know, I've been thinking about this this week because it's the 60th anniversary of the Cuban Missile Crisis. And if you look at what John F. Kennedy was able to do in those 13 days, in terms of stepping outside of the sort of advice, the certainty that of uh, that's getting presented to him with advice from, from uh, his military generals, from political leaders, even in his own party, about what he should do in response to the Soviets and the Cubans. And he can sort of step aside and think, skeptically about that. It's because he's the only person ultimately who has that responsibility as president to make that call. And so if you don't have the example of other people who've had that job before you, that job would feel incredibly lonely. Or to put it more positively, feeling a strong connection to the past and understanding that other people have faced what you have faced before can make the path much clearer for you as, you, as, you're, as you're facing tough decisions. So I think it's just so essential for anyone who holds that office. And perhaps it helps them get willing to take risks about the future. I mean, these insights like that Churchill had or FDR had in these many circumstances, some of them worked out, some were spectacularly wrong, but they were willing to take those risks. Yeah. And I think that, you know, you're willing to take risks if as a president, I think, you know, to generalize, the ones who are who are comfortable taking on risk are ones who have a strong sense of themselves. Um, and a lot of times, and this is not just true of FDR, I think it does come from the experience of having lived through moments of adversity on a personal scale that can, you can then apply those lessons in the public realm. I mean, Eleanor Roosevelt described from polio, the thing that FDR got was the ability to draw, make a decision and then draw a curtain and go to sleep. Um, and and that's, that was obviously such an important and crucial skill for him to have when he's leading the country during World War II, right? Because he had to make decisions on this massive scale that were gonna have civilization-wide consequences, but he wasn't gonna know even for months or years at a time what, what the effect of those decisions was gonna be. And he had to be comfortable with that. And I think in a certain sense, he was comfortable with that because he knew himself and he knew that he had done that sort of thing before when he was making decisions about how to pick his life up again in the aftermath of his polio. Well, Jonathan Darman, as we close, are there any other topics we've not discussed that you would like to leave us with? Um, that's a, that's a, a good question. Um, it's, been, it's been a really uh, fascinating uh, conversation. Um, and, 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 you know, I think, I think that this is an area of, of study that I'm, I'm going to be continually drawn to, is looking at moments from great lives, from some of the most storied American lives, um, where figures that we think of as heroes are, are dealing with personal failure, personal crisis, personal catastrophe, and looking and asking the question, what did they get from that? What did they learn from that? And I think it's really a question that we should ask of our own leaders more and more today, particularly when they're talking about hope. Hope is a word that gets used so frequently 
in our politics that, you know, in a lot of ways, it's sort of lost all meaning. But it's it remains the thing that we need the most um, is someone who can who can tell us even in our troubled times that things are going to be okay, things are going to be better than okay. And so I think what I ta have taken away from all of this work that I've done on FDR's life is sort of thinking about a new way of evaluating politicians who talk about hope, saying when did they need it in their own lives and what did they learn from that and how are they going to put that into off into action. If they if they if they achieve a high office. Fascinating. Well, thank you, Jonathan Darman. It's been a delight to have you with us, and thank you for your outstanding new book, Becoming FDR: The Personal Crisis That Made a President. Thanks. It was a fantastic conversation. And thanks to our listeners for being with us. Please send me ideas for future guests and topics, and follow us on Twitter at James Strzok, and connect via our website, Serve to Lead, or on Substack. Until next time, take care, be strong, and serve to lead. These are not dark days. These are great days, the greatest our country has ever lived. And we must all thank God that we have been allowed, each of us, according to our station, to play a part in making these days memorable in the history of our race.